I feel a little bit bad for Pastor Steve when he just said that he was listening to my um, podcasts or whatever they were and getting very puzzled. <laughs> and and, and um, I think I have that effect on people. I, I don't know who puts this stuff out. I'm, I'm not very computer savvy or technically savvy. Matter of fact, I think I might be borderline dyslexic because I just recently learned my no switch on my computer means on. <laughs> so I don't know who puts this stuff out. And I, I know too, um, I worry sometimes. I'm glad you've got the caffeine back there because um, the only people who buy my books, did I mention this to you when I was at your church? The only people who buy my books are anesthesiologists. <laughs> They found they're cheaper to prescribe than the drugs and they hold people in a much deeper sleep for a longer period of time. And most, when I was a pastor, um, they would always put on the tapes and DV, uh, CDs that they would give out of the sermons, uh, warning, do not listen while driving may cause drowsiness. There was, this actually happened, I'm not embellishing this a bit, there was this one family that came up to me and said, our little six-month-old baby will not go to sleep unless one of your tapes is plugged in. And I said, well, let me give you some more then. And they said, no, one is enough. That conversation actually took place. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I'd like to share from you with you tonight from my favorite passage in the New Testament. And, <coughs> excuse me, if we're going to talk about human brokenness, it seems to me any conversation we have about what it means to grow in Christ needs to be centered in the love of God. If we don't feel secure in his love, my guess is we won't trust any process he's taking us through to grow. And so I want to talk about that. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, I worship you for the privilege of being among these people. I worship you, Father, for the privilege we have of considering how deeply we are loved by you. Forgive us for those times when we get off track, thinking our deepest fulfillment could be found in something else. I pray, Father, that somehow your Holy Spirit would have his way this evening in our lives along these themes. I know, Father, it's ridiculous to think that one person could stand up in a room full of people and say something that would connect with each heart gathered there. Because every person in here has certain challenges unique to their circumstances and situations. I make no pretense before you, Lord. I know that what I offer is just crumbs. But I also know that your son took 
little more than crumbs when Andrew offered him five loaves and two fish by the side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus took it and blessed it and broke it and fed the multitude. Will your Holy Spirit please do that for us today, this evening? We take the words of one and let each person here hear something from you specifically catered and designed for him or her. I pray this would happen. And I know it can only happen if your Holy Spirit is involved in the transaction. So we trust you, Father, and thank you for Christ's sake. Amen. My best friend at Wheaton College, and I have several really close friends uh, who are pro professors there, but my best friend is the theater professor, Mark Lewis. He was uh, an actor on Broadway. He was in the soap operas for several years on television. And he came to Wheaton to teach theater. And many students have gone out into acting from him who are seated in that world as Christians living for Jesus and sharing Christ with others. His name is Mark, and I love him. He was the eighth born child, last born, in a family that was a little bit rigid, probably in their faith, well-meaning, but probably leaned towards the fundamentalist side of things. They were missionaries, and he was born in Argentina. But he didn't have the missionary step to him. He was wired as an artist. And his father, I knew his father, he was a dear guy, but he just didn't understand Mark's artistic proclivities. So consequently, one day when Mark's parents were gone, he wanted to show his parents how much he loved them. So using his artistic talent, he went and got his colors, his crayons, his felt-tip pens, his paints, his colored pencils, and he spent the entire day drawing a mural up the white wall of their house. And he kept thinking to himself, when dad and mom see this, they're going to know how much I love them. And he would imagine as he spent that day doing this, I think they're going to bring our family and friends in to see it and say, look how much Mark loves us. Well, it didn't go that way. The parents came home and they saw this and were shocked. He got spanked and disciplined. He said, you know, I did, it wasn't that I got spanked that what made me so sad. Is it that my parents didn't see what I was trying to show them? Fast forward many years later. Mark was directing the autumn play at Wheaton College. His days went something like this. He'd get up in the morning, help his wife get the kids off to school. Then he would go to school himself. He would teach classes. He would meet with students, faculty student meetings. He would go to faculty governance meetings. He would grade papers and so on. Come home for one hour in the evening for an opportunity to eat dinner and collect himself. After about three or four weeks of this, he was pretty weary because he'd have to go back at night and have rehearsals long into the night. This one evening when he came home, his six-year-old daughter, Ruby, was standing on a chair at the sink with a basin in the sink, and the water was going, and water was splashing everywhere. And Mark was saying, oh, man, I came home to get some rest, and this is what I've got to do, clean up this mess. He gets up and he says, Ruby, honey, what are you doing? 
And Ruby immediately burst into tears. And Mark's wife, Mary, said, Mark, she knew you were weary. She was just putting water in a basin so she could wash your feet. And Mark immediately remembered his own six-year-old experience. And he said, oh, honey, I am so sorry. Please let me help you. And he helped her with the basin. He said, it was the coldest water he ever put his feet in in his life. But he said, you know, my parents didn't get it right. I got it half right. Maybe one day Ruby will get it all right. Why is that story so moving to us? Because every one of us have been the person whose good intentions were misunderstood. And every one of us has been the one who misunderstood another person's good intention. Um, there was a, an author named Donald Miller. He wrote the book Blue Like Jazz. Maybe some of you read it. The sequel to it was Searching for God Knows What. And in this book, Donald Miller said that when he was in school, he was always on the fringe of his group at school. He always longed to be on the inside, to be one of the popular ones at school, but he could never get there. One day he was at home, and he was reading a um, poem, and he liked it, so he committed it to memory. About three weeks later at school, somebody made a comment, and Miller said, oh, that reminds me of a poem I heard once. And he recites it from memory. And all the other students go, Miller, you are smart. You are really smart. He said it was the first time he ever felt good about himself in his life. He said two things followed. One, he started memorizing lots of poetry after that. And number two, he said he realized that he longed to gain a sense of self, but he had to find it from somebody outside of himself, and everyone he looked to was as insecure as he was. There's only one person who can give you a proper sense of self. Only one person who could look at you and understand you. And people, that person loves you and loves you deeply. And this text will point it out for us in a moment. But I want to make another observation before we get into the text itself. It's true, I, 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 most of my academic work is on C.S. Lewis. Most of my books are about him. I've been studying him for 48 years, teaching college and university courses for 38 years, and I've lectured on Lewis in 72 universities in 15 different countries. So my mind is like a pickle soaking in the brine of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I always agree with him. As a matter of fact, there's one place where I disagree with him um, significantly. Lewis said that he thought pride was the great sin. He's not the only one that said it. St. Augustine also said in his commentary on Psalm 19 that he thought pride was the great sin. Uh, when they talk about pride, they're not talking about pride of a job well done, pride you take when your child does something well, or a friend or something like this does something well. When they talk about pride, they're talking about that pride that exhibits itself as pretense, tries to make itself look better than it is. And they talked about pride in this way as if it's the axiom sin around which all other sins constellate. 
or the mainspring from which all other sins are generated. I have no doubt other sins can be generated from pride. But is it the first sin? Is it the greatest sin? And I disagree with them. If they would have said they thought pride was the great sin, like the apex of a pyramid is the greatest point on that pyramid, I could have signed on. But the problem is the, the apex of a pyramid has things beneath it that are far more substantive until you get to the base. So if I'm right, and I'm probably wrong if I disagree with Lewis and Augustine, but hang in there with me and see if I can't make a case. What might be beneath pride? Pretense. Making yourself look better than you are. I don't know about you, but in my life when that happens, I think it's usually fear or insecurity. If you knew me like I am, maybe you would reject me. So maybe I put on airs. If that's true, if it is fear and insecurity, then that which might be at the very base of this pyramid, I would suggest to you, would be to live in neglect of God's love in your life or rejection of his love. Because the scriptures say explicitly, perfect love casts out fear. If perfect love casts out fear, the corollary that can be drawn from this is that imperfect love breeds anxiety. Uh, we, we, we enjoy human love. It's wonderful. But my guess is no human has ever loved you perfectly. And the reason why I'm guessing that is because as I think of my own life, I don't think I've ever loved anybody perfectly. And we live in this world where we enjoy human love as far as it can go, but none of it can go deep enough to give us a sense of security of self, a, a true identity where we can live our human lives in a way that flourishes. Let me see if I can make the point by telling a story. I was on a move, uh, uh, an airplane many years ago, and I saw a movie. I don't like to recommend movies I saw on airplanes because sometimes they're sanitized for the airplane audience. But nevertheless, I saw this film, and I caught myself at the end of the film just bawling. I'm not supposed to do that because I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs, a thinker. I kind of live in my head. I'm not supposed to live by my heart. But nevertheless, I caught myself weeping. C.S. Lewis said, when you read a book, sure, you should think critically about what the author says, but read the book completely first so that you know you understand what the author said. If you're going to think critically about a film, make sure you watch the whole film, then go back and think critically about those parts. So after the movie was over, I tried to say to myself, why did that scene touch my heart so deeply? So let me see if I can recount it for you. The movie that I have in mind was The Notebook. It's funny to me that I always get that response when I mention this movie. Why is that? Because it's a chick flick, and I'm not supposed to like chick flicks. But I want you to know I'm secure enough in my masculinity that I can watch a chick flick. How many of you saw The Notebook? How many of you did not see it? So, Pastor, 
Two-thirds of your church are moviegoers. Okay. So I'm going to tell you the story. It starts with this old man, played by James Garner, going to a hospital to read a story, and he walks up to this old woman who's going to read her a story, and she's very standoffish, and she looks at the orderly, and the orderly says, it's okay, he comes and reads stories here every day. And the impression made, this nice old man in his retirement goes to the rest home and reads stories to old people in the dementia ward. The whole movie is present time. This old man reading this story to this old woman. And the flashback to what's going on in the story. And it's about a young man and a young woman. The young woman comes from a family that has come to summer at a village where there's a lake, kind of like out here. Um, the young boy has lived in this village. He's from very modest means, but the girl obviously comes from some wealth that they could take off from one of the big southern cities and vacation a whole summer at the lake. Uh, the boy has a, a, a decent high school education, high school diploma. He even likes reading the poetry of Walt Whitman. But the girl has the best education that her parents' money could buy. And all of a sudden, we start thinking, there's nothing that's going to let this relationship work. Too much counts against it. But in the summer, a romance begins to develop. And now we see even more things that count against it because we get into the deeper in the story. The boy's family's fractured. We don't know what's happened. Did the mother abandon them or did she die? But there's been pain there. The girl, her family's intact, but they're very pretentious. And the parents of the girl don't like this relationship going on, but they console themselves that they'll be able to rip their daughter out of that village when the summer's over and more things count against the relationship working. As they leave the city, the village, the boy chases after the car, the girl's crying, the boy's crying, and the boy cries out, I'll write to you every day. The girl's mother hears it and every day she's at the mailbox taking the letters so the girl never sees them. He thinks, I said I'd write to her every day, and she never writes back. She says, he said he was going to write to me, and he never wrote back. World War II breaks out, and now circumstances of geography and time and place cause this relationship to have more things that seem to count against its ever working. But at that moment in the movie, the director tips his hand and the audience gets the picture. It's this old man and this old lady's story. And every day he comes to the hospital dutifully to remind her of his love for her. And he reads a story to her day after day after day. It's about that point in the movie where the scene comes and the two are eating dinner, a nice dinner at the hospital. They're just finishing it up. There's a rose and a bud vase. There's a candle burning. There's a record player playing all the music that had so much informed their relationship and the entire environment is pulsating out to this woman, the love of this man for her. He finishes the story he's been reading to her all day. 
And she looks at him and says, that is the most beautiful love story I have ever heard in my life. And it sounds so familiar. And just then cognition washes across her face. And she says to him, it's our story, isn't it? And he says, yes. She says, how much time do we have? He says, last time it was only five minutes. The music is playing, and she says, hold me. Can we dance? And while they dance across that hospital floor, she says, how are the children? That's a question a mother would ask, isn't it? He says, they're fine. They came to see you today. She said, tell them I love them. He says, I will. And as he holds her, as quickly as she came into cognition, she falls out of cognition and finds herself in the arms of a stranger, screams in fear, and the orderlies have to come in and sedate her. And James Garner's character is standing, leaning against the wall, biting his knuckle and weeping, and I lost it. I totally lost it there. Why? What was it about that scene? And it dawned on me. People, this is all of our story. We're all part of an incredible love relationship. And there's so many things that count against it. And constantly we're being told how much we are deeply loved by the lover of our soul. And we live most of our lives in dementia. And then all of a sudden, there come those moments when everything is clear. And we realize how deeply we are loved by this one. And then some little inconvenience occurs. And we fall right back into our dementia. And when I saw James Garner's character biting his knuckle, weeping, I thought, that is a window into the heart of God who constantly tells us he loves us and how he must weep that we live our lives as if that love didn't really matter. We try to find our ultimate fulfillment in other things. It's not that those things can't be fulfilling, but people, none of that stuff will ultimately fulfill. Ultimately, only God fulfills. And if you want to enjoy the other things at their best, then stay rooted in him. So you can enjoy these things for what they can't give, and at the hour that they disappoint, it won't devastate you because your ultimate fulfillment will be in him. So that's what this text now talks about in 1 John 3, about how we can rebuild the foundation, how we could avoid following, falling into the great sin, which is to live in neglect of God's love, and instead how we can begin to stay built on the foundation of his love so that we can be free of fear and be free of pretense. All right, so here it is. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon you that we should be called children of God. I've worked with students virtually all my life. I became a Christian as a college student, and I've tried to invest my life in students ever since. I've seen many students who have difficulty with the fatherhood of God passages in the Bible because they had bad father experiences. But out of 10 students where that might be the case, I've seen only one in 10 have real struggle with the passage 
Whereas I've seen nine out of ten who had problems with their own father at home who take to those passages like a duck to water because they long to have the father vacuum filled and filled well. So the thing that's interesting to me is that I, I, I read in the scripture that the sins of the parents visit themselves, the children, third and fourth generation. We live in a broken world. And the messages that come down aren't always so good. Oftentimes they're very good, but sometimes they're not. One incautious word coming from a parent's lips can cut so deeply that it could leave us struggling with things for the rest of our life. But the Bible is such a balanced book that it also says just because the father eats sour grapes, it doesn't mean that the children's teeth will be set on edge. We can break free of the cycles of generational sin. There was a, an English pastor in the 17th century who did a devotional on the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. If anybody has time to do devotionals on genealogies, I think they might have too much time on their hands. But nevertheless, listen to what Thomas Fuller wrote with this understanding of both the sins that can visit us, but the fact that we can break free. Lord, I find the genealogy of my Savior strangely checkered with four remarkable changes in four immediate generations. One, Rehoboam begat Abiah, that is a bad father, a bad son. Two, Abiah begat Asa, that is a bad father, a good son. Three, Asa begat Jehoshaphat, that is a good father, a good son. Four, Jehoshaphat begat Joram, that is a good father, a bad son. I see, Lord, from hence that my father's piety cannot be handed on. That's bad news for me. But I see also that actual impiety is not always hereditary, and that is good news for my son. You have to be touched by the tenderness of that. But the one thing is we've all had earthly fathers. Some were good. Some were not so good. Most of them did the best they knew how, I think. But nevertheless, any of us who have been fathers, we know in our own minds there were times when we didn't perform as well as we might have. But I want you to know no earthly father has ever done it perfectly, but there is one father who always gets it right. And this text says, people, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And John wants his readers to get it. And to get it in a way that it will be the foundation for how they build their life. And understand the circumstances of life. For this reason, he goes on to say, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. When Christians get it into our heads and our hearts how much God loves us, it's incomprehensible to the world. Francis Thompson, the great English poet, wrote the poem, The Hound of Heaven. The hound was God chasing this man, and he's running away from the very thing he longs for most. And when finally he spent his life in dissipation 
and the hound catches up. The hound, God, in the poem, says to him, human love needs human meriting. You know how some people, they give love only if they think somebody's earned it? That's not divine love. Human love needs human meriting. How hast thou merited, the hound says to the man whose life is spent. Of all man's clotted clay, you're the dingiest clot. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee, save only me? Because God doesn't love by virtue of merit. He loves by virtue of his immutable, unchanging character. God is love. Uh, this is an interesting feature. He has never stopped loving Satan. You know how I know? Satan's acts cannot change God's character. And the Bible says God is love. The tragedy of Satan is not that God stopped loving him but that Satan has so removed himself into the realm of his dementia that he's unaware. He's achieved reprobation. It's tragic. Don't let that kind of reprobation come upon you. You are loved by God. The world doesn't get it. It goes on to say this. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day, Jesus is going to show up for us. Either we're going to go home in death, or he's going to show up because we're going to be here when he comes. And it says when that day comes, we're going to be like him. We're not going to be like him in his deity. We will never be rivals for his omnipotence and power. We will never be omnipresent as he is. We will never be uncreated. It's too late. We're created beings. But what does it mean when he, we see him, we'll be like him? I think it means when we see Christ, we'll be like him in his perfected humanity. You have to take this completely by faith at my age right now. But when I was in college, I played football. <laughs> and, and I remember this one time when I was in college, I got a concussion. I was a running back. I got hit, I got a concussion. Everything went fuzzy. I cried out to God, oh God, it's my senior year. Don't let this happen to me. And everything went clear immediately. And I never had another concussion again. I've often wondered if when we get to heaven, it's all going to be clear. And we're going to realize we've lived our whole life somewhat concussed. And this, this text says, when we see him, we'll be like him. We'll let go of all the garbage we've been holding on to in his place. None of that stuff will matter anymore. And we'll get to heaven, and we'll just be in utter awe of what we see. And it's going to be dynamic, not static. If God is infinite, how much can you know about him? If you know in your finite selves zero to 100 bits of information about God, how much more is there to know about the infinite God? An infinite amount. If you know zero to 1,000 bits, how much more is there still to know? An infinite amount. If you know zero to a billion bits, how much more is there to know? An infinite amount. We will never get to the bottom of him. I've had this friend, we've had a, a, a 38-year ongoing theological discussion as to what our first word will be when we get to heaven. My friend, who's wrong, <laughs> says he thinks it will be 
oh. Oh, now I see why I went through that horrible financial reversal. Oh, now I see why that person I love so deeply dumped me. Oh, now I see why that job was lost or that person I love died so suddenly. Oh, oh, I get it. It's not bad, but he's wrong. Our first word when we get to heaven is going to be, wow, wow, I didn't know that about him. The next moment, I didn't know that either. Wow, wow, wow. It's going to be amazing, people. I, I don't know for sure that's going to be our first word. Maybe it'll be something more like, oh, wow. I don't know, but maybe <laughs> something like this. Bottom line is, that's one day. That's not now. One day will be fixed. We're not fixed now. We're broken. So what about now? And the text says this, Beloved, now we are children of God. Now, in our broken state, with all the struggles of our soul, he still claims us as his children. What does that look like? Let me give you two analogies. When, when our kids were young, my wife and I tried to figure out how to raise them. We, I, we still haven't figured it out. We would go to seminars. We'd read books. We got the first child and thought, okay, the plan seems to be working here. Then the next child comes and you got to start from scratch all over again because somehow the personalities are different. They operate on different, you know, tracks and so on. One of the things we wanted to try and figure out was how to discipline our kids. So we came up with this plan. We would never discipline our kids unless we had instructed them not to do something so it was clear they were being disciplined for some transact, some, some uh, transgression. My kids were very creative, so we were always having to remind them of new transgressions, right? <laughs> Second, we would never discipline them without having them understand why the discipline was occurring. So I'd always say, did, did, did I tell you, what did I tell you not to do? They would say, I'd say, and what did I say I would do if you did that? And they'd say, you said you would discipline me, Father. I'd say, but am I, am I happy you did that? They'd say, no. I'd say, is there anything you could ever do that make me stop loving you? No, Dad, nothing. But do I love you any less because you did that? No, Dad, you don't. And then I'd administer my discipline. Well, if they, were, if they had done something that was just, you know, naughtiness or something, they'd have a timeout for as, as many uh, minutes as they were years old. So if they're three, they had a three-minute timeout. You know what three minutes is like to a, a three-year-old? It gives new meaning to the word eternal for them. But if they did something that could run risk of life or limb for themselves or their siblings or friends, they would be spanked. You know what my kids would do whenever I was finished spanking them or disciplining them? I would always take them in my arms and hug them after I'd finished disciplining them. So what they would always do, 100% of the time, they'd turn around like that for the hug. 
and I'd take them in my arms. I didn't always do it right. I'll talk to you about that tomorrow morning. But nevertheless, they'd turn around like this for the hug, and I'd hold them. And I would hold them until they were happy so that they would know I did not reject them as a person. I only rejected the bad thing they might have done. And with my boys, they'd turn around. I have three boys. My three boys would turn around like this for a hug. I'd hold them in my hand, arms. In time, we'd start to sway. In time, we'd maybe start to sing. I'd give them a kiss. I'd tickle them, send them on their way. I have one daughter. She has her doctorate in psychology. She's married to a psychologist. I feel I drove her to this. And I don't think two psychologists is enough even then. But nevertheless, when my daughter would turn around like this for the hug, I was stuck with a moral dilemma. You see, every orifice in her face would have leaked. Her eyes would have leaked. Her nose would have leaked. Her mouth would have drooled. And she's turning around like this for the hug. And I'm tempted to say to her, listen, Alicia, I've got that hug for you. But why don't you go take a shower first, you know, <laughs> clean up a little bit, and then you come back and get that hug. But that would communicate something I didn't want to communicate. That's not how God loves us. And so I would take her in my arms, and she would put her head on my shoulder and leave evidence of her DNA <laughs> all over my clothes. And I learned what this text meant then. Every father who loves his child bears the stain because he loves the child. Let me give you another analogy. I was a youth pastor, a college pastor. My wife was a stay-at-home mom during those childbearing years. We lived on a shoestring. She hated maternity clothes. And back when we were having our children, where did you go to buy the maternity clothes? Not in some cutesy little maternity shop over here. It was in some back corner of a women's department store. They had them, but it was almost like they were embarrassed to sell clothes like that. So there were a couple of maternity outfits she had. There were a couple that some other women in the church had. And as we went through that period of life with these other couples, there was this sort of maternity wardrobe that went around the church. I can remember one time walking up to this woman. I saw her on the aisle. I walk up to her after the service over, put my arm around her, and look over. It wasn't my wife. She was in my wife's clothes, but it wasn't her. <laughs> but we always made a deal that when we were going through those times when she was pregnant, as soon as the baby was born, and she could look down and see her feet again, she would go out and buy two new outfits. Have you ever seen a new mother finally out of that maternity stuff with a new outfit on, with a new baby, where the baby is in any way compatible with the new outfit? No. Mother nurses a baby. She puts a diaper on her shoulder. She puts the baby's face in the diaper. Does the baby hit the diaper? No. And every mother who loves her child bears the stain because she loves the child. Do you see it? Do you see how great this love is? Okay, so what does it go on to say by way of application in the text? Verse 3. Everyone who has this hope, this hope of the love of God that's unconditional, 
This love that loves us even though, even though we're not complete. That loves us now. Everyone who has this hope on this purifies himself just as he is pure. The motivation for anything we do in the Christian life should be built on this kind of love. Let me see if I can explain it. My dad was a good man. He died in 2010. Kind of a quiet guy. I, I, I knew he loved me. He demonstrated it by his life, but I never heard him say the words. Why was that? Well, he was an old Marine in World War II. Did you guys see the movie Saving Private Ryan? My dad was in three D-Day invasions like that in the South Pacific. First wave at Tarawa, the bloodiest battle of World War, of World War uh, II. Second wave at Saipan, first wave at Tinian. At Tinian, he was horribly wounded. He carried around in his body 292 pieces of shrapnel all the rest of his life. And yet he was a kind man. I never heard him say a negative word about anybody. I never heard him say a curse word. He was just a decent person. He was a strong guy, an old Marine. My younger brother was an All-American football player in college. I was a guy who started for three years on his college team. We both bench pressed 400 pounds. We could full squat 500 for 10 reps. We were strong. We were fast. We were at a family picnic. My dad threw a water balloon at us. And we got soaked. So we chased after him. He outran us for 50 yards. He didn't have any wind after that. He turned around and stood his ground. We caught up to him. He took his hands, grabbed each of us, and threw us on the ground. <laughs> and we said, gee, Dad, would you like some more fried chicken and how about a little potato salad? <laughs> he was a tough guy, but a nice guy and a good guy. And one day he came up to me when I was a sophomore in college and he put his arm around me and he said to me, Jerry, I love you. You know how I responded, don't you? I didn't say, well, why did you finally wait till now to tell me? Or it's about time you told me. No. With my eyes welling with tears, I said to him what was the proper response to a statement like that. I said, Dad, I love you too. But if we really understand God's love for us, it's not words that we respond with, merely. I found myself on weekends coming home from college to help him rake the leaves, mow the lawn, wash his car. And I realized at that time, I was coming home to show him how much I loved him. But I could have been coming home to rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car to try and get him to love me. Or knowing he loved me, I could have come home to rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car. Same action, but an eternal difference in motivation. Our lives need to be built on this great fact. The God of the universe knows you. And he loves you. Now, I took... 
a place and disagreed with C.S. Lewis, so out of fairness, I need to agree with him one place. Just before he died, three weeks before he died, he got a letter from a little girl in America. She had read his Narnian books and liked them, so she wrote to him through his publisher. The letter gets to him. It's one of the last things that he writes with his pen. This great Christian leader on the threshold of eternity writing to an 11-year-old American girl on the threshold of her earthly experience. And this is what he says to her. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much will go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. And that's how I'd like to end this evening. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We're, we're not much good at it. We don't love you very well. But you sure make it easy for us. We're overwhelmed by your love for us. I pray, Father, you would minimize the periods of dementia. That you would make us more flush with cognition more frequently in our days and weeks that we might live our lives where the little inconveniences, the bumps and bruises of life, they won't knock us off our center. Thank you for loving us and making it easy for us to love you. We're grateful for Christ's sake. Amen.